So one thing that's really interesting about the video game, one of the reasons I love it and wanted to adapt it is Joel and Ellie are just people. They are not superheroes. They don't shoot things out of their eyeballs. Mm -hmm. There is no science fiction technology. There is no magic. It is just reality. And we were able, because we were doing it in live action, to go even further with that and say, Joel is in his 50s. He can't sprint. He can't yeah. walk around crouching for an hour the way you can in the video game. Yeah. Um, He's got Mike Birbiglia-esque energy. He has a Mike Birbiglia-esque <laughs> aerobic capacity. <laughs> 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 and uh, he is not as susceptible to pizza. Oh my gosh. I I'm mean, glad you had the conversations. These are the hard conversations. It's why we didn't go with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is the voice of the great Craig Mazin. Uh, this is this is one of my favorite episodes of all time. This We called an audible on this episode because I love his series on HBO that is called The Last of Us, and I'm not alone. That series has been seen by... Upwards of 30 or 40 or 50 million people. Like, so, it's so popular. Like, it's extraordinarily popular. And uh, and it's great. I mean, I don't. I actually don't even want to say anything other than, you know, there's spoilers in this episode. I, if I were you, if you like this podcast, I would watch an episode or two or all of that season and then come back and listen to this episode um, this is a lovely episode. Craig is the co-host of Script Notes with John August, uh, who I hope will come and visit our show as a guest as well. Another one of my favorite screenwriters. Script Notes is a podcast about screenwriting. I, I would say hands down the best podcast about screenwriting and possibly just writing in general. Like it's extraordinary. The other thing about this episode that I love is that we talk a lot about writing screenplays from scratch. Craig has written a lot of movies and television. He has extraordinary insight uh, into it. You get a taste of that today. And so if you're a writer or creative, I think this is a great episode for you. One of the things that's interesting about Craig is he started in comedy, uh, wrote some of the Hangover movies, uh, wrote Identity Thief, a bunch of huge, huge comedies. And then recently made Chernobyl for HBO, which is extraordinary. And now The Last of Us. Again, <laughs> spoilers galore. Um, oh, and I'm working on a new show. I'm working on new material. I'm going to be in Indianapolis um, this week. I'm going to be in, we just added shows in Long Island, at a small club in Long Island called Governors in Levittown. It's a great club, great place to see the show. We're adding some shows coming up in Sag Harbor, um, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Providence, Rhode Island. I'm going to go back to the Columbus Theater to do an encore there because I love that Columbus Theater. It's a little intimate attic space they have where I've worked out material for my shows the last few times. Um, I think you're going to love this episode. Oh, another quick thing is A Man Called Otto, a film that I, I play a role in with Tom Hanks, directed by Mark Forrester, who was a guest on the show on this podcast in January, is now on Netflix, which is fantastic. <laughs> People have been writing to me, Mike, you are a bad man in this movie, and I, I it's, it's it's true. I'm a I'm I'm the I'm the heel. I'm the antagonist. I'm an actor. You you please please be understanding. I'm an actor. Um, but uh, but watch The Last of Us and enjoy my conversation with a great. Craig Mazin. After I watched Last of Us, I had to resist just calling you and asking you all the questions I'm going to ask you today on the show. I appreciate that. <laughs> because you have shown a restraint that others have not. And oh, is that right? Well, I don't look, I don't mind. It, it's a nice feeling. The you would prefer people calling you after each episode than silence. Just total <laughs> silence. You know? Uh, do you think of me as uh more of a Joel or an Ellie? Mm, oh god. 
That's a great question. I've actually, it's it's a rare person that uh, reminds me of neither Joel nor Ellie. <laughs> uh, you have literally none of any of their, you don't have resilience, as far as I can tell you, have no grit, you're not violent. You're just, I don't think you would last a, a moment. Uh, I, you, your immune I'm, system isn't strong. <laughs> I meant this I meant this to be a humorous moment and what it's pivoted into is just plain cruel. Yes, but you also knew that would happen. <laughs> so when and, you were casting Joel, you were thinking like we want a Mike Birbiglia type, but obviously we can't get him. No. So what was, about Pedro Pascal? What about someone who's like sort of more famous yeah. but maybe isn't as believable as a survivor in this scenario? It was made clear to us that you were the most gettable person <laughs> of all. Like there's a, a ranking system of gettability and <laughs> you are a perfect 100. <laughs> uh, so we always knew we had you in our back pocket. Oh my gosh. Which I think is great. Um, it's really oh important gosh. to just, you need a fallback plan no, in case, course. you know, no, and I'm, so you were plan X. Oh, plan uh, X. Plan yeah, X. Yeah, Thank yeah. you so much. Yes. You were plan X. And, and you know what? I got to say it's, maybe we'll get you, maybe we'll work you in there somehow. Oh yeah, you know? please. I mean, I we would, got Melanie Linsky's husband, oh, Jason gosh. Ritter was, uh, oh, Jason yes. Ritter got to be, a, a an infected guy running around. Oh, while I would his, love to his, be an infected person. Oh, well. My friend, all you need is a is a plane ticket to Vancouver. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll handle the rest. Note that I'm not even giving you a plane ticket. Oh, I'll get the no, I'll get myself the plane ticket. I'll fly I'll fly Coach Air Canada. Are you kidding me? Get me there. No, and those and the infected people. I mean, I watch the behind the scenes hmm. stuff too. I mean, those people are astonishing physically. What they're doing physically is amazing. Yeah, there's we we really lucked out. I mean, there's, I think it's not even luck. The game had put so much um, kind of interest out there. So by the time we're looking around and saying, hey, who's going to be a clicker? Yeah. There's a guy who's obsessed with the game, who's very tall, very thin, and a dancer. Right. And I think for years had been kind of doing the clicker as a party trick. Oh, interesting. And then- And the clicker's like- I mean, he does the whole thing. It's he the moves thing, yeah. and makes the sounds and everything. And we're like, it's for the listeners, it's these characters who are in, infected by a fungus, and that's why they're clicking, making a clicking sound. Yeah, the, these people, the fungus has sort of erupted out of their heads, so they don't even have eyes anymore. So they echolocate by making clicking noises, which is uh, scary. This and, episode is sponsored by Spoiler Alert. <laughs> And Tenactin, fighting fungus <laughs> wherever you get it. It's tough acting. Tenactin. <laughs> what a Paul. strong Tenactin uh, call out. Yeah, yeah. Um, do we get like impromptu money from Tenactin? Oh, yeah, yeah, you should. Yeah. I always recommend your podcast to everyone, uh, oh, script notes to everyone, and, and, and a tip of the cap to John August, who we hope to have on this podcast as well, yeah. um, who's a, another brilliant screenwriter. But but one of the things I always I always send people to is you have an episode where you just describe for 40 minutes what you think, how you think one should attempt <laughs> to write a screenplay. Right. I send it to everybody. Everyone I work with, I send it to because it's a great shorthand for this is what I have in mind. This is, and we, what you basically say, and, and I'll let you sort of say it better than me. What you basically say is, all of these books about screenwriting and these classes and all these things, and this happens, it has to happen at page 10, and this has to happen at page 30, and this has to happen, the second plot point here, you can throw that all away, and essentially yeah. it comes down to people want to, to uh, uh, see a story that gets you interested, keeps you interested, and takes you on a journey. Yeah, the, the books are almost all written from the point of view of a post-film analysis where they'll take a movie apart yeah. and show you how it all works. I mean, the analogy I use in that particular episode is that the people that are teaching screenwriting or writing screenwriting books are kind of like pathologists. So they bring you in and they open up the body and they show you, oh, look, here's where the liver is, here's where the lungs are. Yes. 
But taking a body apart does not help you make a new life. It's an entirely yes. different process. Yes, wow. And so how do you build something when there's nothing there if all you've been taught is how to take apart things that pre-exist? So there are these things that they say that are true, like there's a, in the midpoint, a character should have like a shift in perspective. True. Yeah. Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and so what I talk about, uh, That's I right. talk about is why. And all of it basically comes down to uh, following a character who believes in one thing. Yes. And putting them through torment and torture until they finally, as an act of faith, behave in accordance with the opposite. Yes. of what they used to believe. And that is a very hard thing to do, but that is at the core of what human striving is. We believe in this, but we need to undo that belief and see the opposite side of that to get to hear and grow. That's what that's what every Pixar movie does. Literally every single one. Yeah. It's basically uh I think at one point in the episode you describe it as the there's a thesis of of a film and eventually the protagonist is going to arrive at embodying the thesis and because at the at the beginning the character is the antithesis and yes. the antithesis really wants to maintain his or her life as the antithesis and so there's all these way, moments along the way that push the character back into being and embodying the antithesis and eventually if you write it well enough the character plausibly ends up becoming the thesis or embodying the thesis. Yeah, and that's why I think we like stories because we, that's what we go through as people. We, you know, when you're feeling something and you're terrified of what you're feeling and you don't want to say it because you're worried that it's going to cause a problem or disrupt your life. Yeah. So you just don't. So you, you yeah. don't because you're afraid. Uh, we we all know that feeling. And then then you think about, well, maybe I will say it, and you kind of tiptoe towards it, and all the things you were afraid of happening happened, but times 10. Well, now you're yeah. absolutely terrified. So this is part of our job as writers is to create a character that reflects that reality for us and make them go through things that are external and yeah. terrible. So it's not just like, okay, I'm really, really scared now because I got nervous because of the way the person I was starting to tell this to felt. It's more like there is a meteor that is going to smash into us. And I really don't want to say the thing that is terrifying because it will put me at risk from the meteor and all the rest of it. And and then you get to a point where you're like, no, no, no. The answer is I have to grow and be honest and confront my fear. It is yeah. it is so simple. Our all All we do. All therapy is, is us eventually getting to what we're afraid of and then facing it and trying to get through it. As far as I can tell, yeah. that's what yeah. therapy Which is. Which is why we're inspired by watching movies, reading books, yeah. where the characters can do this thing that is so hard for us to do. There are certain kinds of stories, and I think The Last of Us is one of them, or at least this this chapter of it is where yeah. we actually, where we end up, we're not sure if that person broke through in the right direction. <laughs> yes. You know? And it can get That's complicated, right. right? It's not as simple as you just have to tell, you have to stand up for yourself. And then finally at the end, you stand up for yourself, you know? Like there's a whole genre of movies from the 90s where the entire movie was about a dad that didn't spend enough time with his kids. And yeah. then a whole bunch of stuff happens. And at the end, he just comes and he's like, you know what? I put, I'm putting family first. Yes. Work isn't as important. And that's incredibly simple. And also, like, all those movies were made by dads that were not with their children. <laughs> 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 but they're, they're, they're more complicated outcomes. But in the end, that's, that's it. Now, comedy has to do all that and make you laugh. And make you laugh. Yeah. It's like, you know, Ginger Rogers doing it backwards and in heels. But what about, I think that there's examples of uh, the antithesis of, of the type of film that you're describing, which is like the Coen Brothers movies, for example. Mm -hmm. In the Coen Brothers movies, it's like, like if you look at Serious Man, it's like no matter what the characters do to grow, ultimately it's a rain on their parade at the end. It's just, they're dead. 
Right. So you— Spoiler alert on Serious Mouse yeah. came out like 20 years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, I was— Great movie. Tried to be as upfront as I could when I was outlining how, you know, how do you write a movie that it was really about traditional narratives that we use in Hollywood. What the Coen brothers and a lot of other filmmakers do are things that very studiously avoid clarity, um, but nonetheless provoke. Uh, I think the Coen brothers in particular have the most remarkable intelligence. So I, for instance, I'm obsessed with Barton Fink. So I have all these theories about one of their one of their first movies, means. which was about a hol- like a playwright in Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. So it was based roughly on the real story of Clifford Odets, who was a, a, a New York based playwright who was writing about the common man, uh, and he gets drawn out to Hollywood to write screenplays and just gets dumped right smack dab in the middle of of Hollywood grotesquerie and vulgarity, and yet perhaps it is he who is the problem, and. The Coen brothers made this film. Uh, so Barton Fink plays this playwright. He goes out to L.A. He's living in this horrible hotel, and he has a neighbor uh, played by John Goodman, who, uh, as it turns out, is a serial killer, but <laughs> but also the <laughs> nicest guy. <laughs> and um, and there's this all this wonderful allusion to decay, the the wallpaper is peeling off the walls and there's all the wallpaper glue is oozing. John Goodman has an ear infection and there's ooze coming out of his ear. There's a lot of a sense that that maybe John Turturro is in hell. It, it's, it's incredible and it defies clarity and instead provokes you to think about the film in terms of all sorts of possibilities. And when I, I got to work with John Goodman on the third Hangover movie, and so, uh, and I worked up my courage. So like on day three, while we were sitting there waiting for some shot to be set up, I, I just brought up Barton Fink and how much I loved it. And I said, look, I know what I think it's about, but what do you think it's about? <laughs> or, or did they ever tell you? And he said, uh, he said, they never told me. And he said, and I have absolutely no idea what it's about. He said, uh, <laughs> He said, my job uh, was to be there on time and know my lines. And I I just kept it to that. Okay, so when I made, when I was writing Don't Think Twice, I was having a series of like readings in my living room with friends Mm -hmm. and screenwriter friends who you were uh, generous enough to come over and give notes on that script. Some of the most significant notes in the whole process. And one of the notes and I, I note it when I'm watching your work because you execute it so well. As you, at, at, the, at the phase of Don't Think Twice that it was at, you said, um, in the middle of the movie, we're ahead of the characters mm. or we're ahead of the story. We know what's going to happen before it happens. And you basically said, once, once that happens, the audience is gone. And I never have that with, uh, with The Last of Us. I'm just never ahead of it. Mm. And my question, the question is, how, what are tricks towards achieving that? Are you running scripts by friends and saying, hey, are you ahead of it? Are you ahead no. of the story? <laughs> no. No? <laughs> no. I mean, I, I have my producing partner who reads every page and she, we go through it like with a fine tooth comb and she, you know, will call out certain specific things. But I think, and, and on The Last of Us, I had Neil Druckmann who oh, yes, you know, read through everything. Created but, the created the video game in the first place. Exactly, that and it's co-created based on. the show, and yeah. and but I think that mostly comes out in the planning phases uh, because I'm not a sit down and start writing guy. I'm a planner, and I think that planning helps you avoid some of that. It helps you start to think about the show the way you might think about one of your shows, which is I need to constantly surprise and confound and it because comedy and magic are basically the same discipline it's just that yes it's just one is way dorkier than the other but sure but, uh i need to misdirect so i'm always thinking about that like because the, the, you know it's the it's the equivalent of like okay i've got a bunch of jokes but it's pretty clear that everybody knows where this joke is going halfway through that would oh, be absolutely. so sweaty yeah so i think about that but i the other if there's a trick, it's just to remember that characters are confused 
about the world around them. And to try as best you can to write impressionistically, meaning what is it that they see? What do they think is going on? What conclusions do they make? And how are they wrong? Because their wrongness, that's what's going to- This is great. You know what I mean? So it's- it's basically like, what do they perceive is happening? What do they perceive? What Visually, what are they seeing? Okay. Sonically, what are they hearing? What are they hearing? What presumptions do they have? What presumptions do they have? What presumptions have been reinforced? What have been reinforced and how are they wrong? And then, as it turns out, how are they wrong? How are they wrong? Because, because ultimately, which is a great metaphor for all of existence in life, which is we're all wrong. We're all all wrong all the time. Basically, every year we learn about things we were wrong about last year. Every 20 years, we learn about even bigger things we were wrong about 20 years ago. And every 50 years, forget about it. Exactly. And the same thing works for characters, that they should be making false conclusions. The key is whatever it is that they're concluding, when you're watching it as an audience member, you need to look at what they're doing and go, yeah, that makes total sense. Yes, their conclusion is correct. Ah, they're smart. They figured something out. So yeah. that when that character gets the rug pulled out from under them, so too do you as the audience member. It's interesting because uh, you know your collaborator Todd Phillips on on uh, a, a bunch of movies, mm. kind of famously and controversially said he was leaving comedy, yeah. or that or that comedy movies can't be made anymore, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and, they can. And I, <laughs> I think they can. They can. <laughs> yeah, they can. I disagree with. I, I disagree with his point because there are yeah. great comedy movies still being made. Yeah, but I think there's a grain of truth in what he's saying in the sense that I think that even in my solo shows, I find it increasingly hard to admit things about myself mm. that are wrong or mm-hmm. that are flawed without a handful of people on the internet saying, "Aha! I caught you. You yes. did something wrong," and I'm yes. like. Right, that's what the show is about. Right, the show is about my flaws because if I did a show that was a, uh, essentially an Instagram post about myself, uh, <laughs> look at how great I look in this sunlight on the beach. That's not a show, and it's yeah. just not interesting. And it's just not interesting. So yes, there are people that um, make themselves feel better by pointing out what's wrong with other people and judging them. And I'm sure there was some religious guy who said <laughs> something about that a uh, long time ago. Jeebus <laughs> Gene? Don't guess. Gene Don't Christ? guess. No, no, the guesses are offensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. Genius Christ. G- Genius Christ? <laughs> yeah, Genius yeah, Christ said. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... Uh, there are people like this. There's Maria Bamford, who is one of my favorite comedians, um, had this great bit where she talked about going through this experience of screwing up and saying something and then people coming after her. And then she said, you know, later somebody else did the very same thing she did and she got to yell at them and discover that there is no greater joy than teaching someone a lesson that you have just learned yourself. (laughs) Ah. Support for Mike Birbiglia's Working It Out comes from Helix Sleep. Helix has been with this podcast from the very beginning. We are huge Helix Mattress fans over here. Let me tell you a few things that are great about Helix Sleep Mattresses. They are fiberglass-free. Unlike other brands, Helix Mattresses do not contain fiberglass, which can be harmful to your health. As you may have seen in the news or on social media, there have been a number of health issues and lawsuits related to fiberglass and mattresses. You know, actually, I used to to have a mattress that was pure fiberglass. It was just, it was literally a bed of fiberglass. No longer. I sleep on Helix mattresses, which are fiberglass-free. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash burbigs. That's helixsleep.com slash burbigs. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. No, now. 
Working It Out is supported by Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. I should point out that this is an ad for Squarespace, but I love Squarespace. I was thrilled when they became an advertiser because we've used them for years. Our website for Thank God for Jokes was Squarespace. Our website for Stand Up and Vote was Squarespace. Couldn't recommend it more highly. We use it all the time. Start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint. You can sell exclusive content on your site by adding a paywall to sell memberships or courses, or sell files your customers can download like PDFs, music, or eBooks. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, head to squarespace.com slash burbigs, B-I-R-B-I-G-S, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash burbigs to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So in episode three, there's a relationship between uh, Nick Offerman's character and another excellent actor, uh, Murray Bartlett. And it sort of lit up the internet in a certain way, a discussion of this episode because it's these two men who find themselves in a romantic relationship in this wildly uh, unbelievable scenario of essentially the end of the world or close to, (laughs) maybe Mm -hmm. close to the end. We'll find out in season two. Uh, (laughs) But it's the end of the world. But it's it's in an apocalyptic kind of like uh, scenario. They find themselves in love. Uh, Previously, one of the characters was not... uh, out, out. Uh, out of the yeah. closet. Uh, the other one uh, was, was openly gay. And they find themselves in uh, a gay relationship that is very deep. And I think the, the reason that the episode was went so far and wide was two, two reasons. One is, it is, I feel like 10, 15 years ago, at least in a show like this show, I don't think this would have been an episode of the show. It just doesn't seem like it would have made it in. Um, and I think, two, the reason it moved people is not because <laughs> this is what men do, this is what women do, this is what gay couples do, this is what heterosexual couples do. It's because it's love and it's about um, it, this beautiful, loving relationship these two characters have. Yeah, it's an interesting question if it were 10 years earlier. I mean, the game came out 10 years earlier. And in the game, there is an allusion to Bill's homosexuality. But it is all kind of sub rosa. It's it's barely hinted at, really. You, okay. You'd never meet Frank. For instance, in, in the game, Frank is dead. Um, okay. You so you show up and Bill is there and Bill you go on these missions with Bill and he's a cranky guy who's angry and talks briefly about how he had a partner that he doesn't work with anymore and you think it's business partner as it turns out it's life partner and then you eventually find Frank who's hanged himself and Frank is left behind a suicide note that is the meanest <laughs> like I would <laughs> rather be dead than spend one more day with your fucking annoying ass. And so obviously, you know, I suggested to Neil that maybe we try something else. It's an interesting question about, you know, the audience and how far they go in accepting things. I think you're right in that our society has changed dramatically on this issue. Yeah. And the where I think people connected on that particular episode is uh, with a kind of story we actually don't see much of, and it's not a gay romance, although they are. It's old. <laughs> oh, it's, right. It's about- They're in, their, about 50, two, they're in their 50s. Yeah, it's about two middle-aged men with normal bodies, although actually Murray's ripped. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's upsetting. Um, but just, you know, regular sort of people- Relatable folks, ex- yeah. Who then experience- the reality of monogamy over the course of years. Yeah. And how love isn't romance. Love isn't the first spark of sexual attraction. That's all amazing. Love is another thing entirely. And watching that unfold, um, I think is what connected people to it. But 
the people that I heard from the most and who were, I think, the most moved were middle-aged married men, yeah. married gay men, yeah, who were like, uh, yeah, we don't see, this you know, there's a whole, a like, we don't see ourselves on, yeah. yeah, gay people see themselves on TV all the time now, but yeah. middle-aged married gay people yeah. who are dealing with stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with their sexuality, no, you don't see it much. I had a friend who who had a reaction, a very opinionated friend who who said <laughs> that at the beginning of that episode, he was very dismissive of, oh, they're just doing it just cause. They're making mm-hmm. it a gay couple just cause. That's what shows do in Hollywood is just <laughs> trying to always make sure that every group is accounted for each other. Mm. Yeah. And then he's like, by the end, I was crying all over myself. And it's a, te- it's a testament to it's a, yeah, yeah. it's a testament to just that 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 ultimately, uh, no matter what background a character comes from, um, that it has to speak to the humanity of the character, or else it's just not going to work. I yeah, and and it is not just because because there is this thing where you can say, well, why do you pick a, a couple to be a certain way? I mean, for for the longest time, couples were heterosexual always because just because because yeah. you understood that was the option that was available to you. Yeah. And then when this other option became available, absolutely some people just started saying, "Oh my god, look at this. We we were never able to do this before. Let's yeah. just do it just cuz." Yeah. What's interesting about I, I try as best I can to make every choice intentional whether I decide a couple should be straight or gay or whatever. There's, there is some sort of additional purpose behind it. And that includes for heterosexual people. Like, what yeah. is that additional purpose? Yeah. And in this case, I was fascinated by the idea of a man who was closeted from everything. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just closeted from sexuality. He lived in a fucking bunker. He's a <laughs> he survivalist. was literally, yes. But, he, but survivalist in the sense of I have sealed myself off in my home. Mm-hmm. My mother, with only my mom who died. Mm-hmm. Nobody in the community even is like, hey, where's Bill? They yeah. barely even see Bill. Yeah, He's in his bunker hiding. And then when everybody leaves, he's happy. And then the <laughs> first thing he does is he puts a fence, an electrified fence around his little part of the, of the neighborhood. Yeah, And so the, his closet just gets bigger, but it's a closet. Yeah. And that it, the idea of one person coming in and saying, "Oh, I see you." Yeah. Like yeah. almost immediately. And the the so the danger is letting someone into your heart, which is all about what this show is about. Yeah. Um so it was very intentional, but I'm happy that your opinionated friend uh didn't just sit there with his arms folded grumbling the word woke over and over. Somebody, and, and, but some people probably did, right? <laughs> oh my God, yes. But I feel like, <laughs> I, I remember when I was a kid and I went to go see E.T., it was so emotionally devastating to me towards the end when like E.T. was like, had to run away and was like found like in the, and I was so ashamed of my vulnerability and emotional response that I just, refused to acknowledge that ET was good. <laughs> I was I was like I was like I just decided it was manipulative. And yeah, so is everything that we make. All art is designed, it's intentional. I don't know if that but I couldn't handle it. And I think yeah. some people just some people honestly just don't like it. That's totally fine. I I don't mean to imply that no one could possibly not like this stuff, but I think some people begin to have emotional responses, are ashamed of their emotional response, yeah. and just go all the way the other direction because it's they're protecting themselves. I have a funny story about that, which is that when Don't Think Twice came out in the theater, Questlove was at the theater and, and he was walking out of the cinema and there was a woman crying, mm. literally in tears and saying, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and, he, and, and, he, and he walked over to her yeah. which I'm shocked by yeah. and explained to her that actually 
Uh, actually, actually, this is a classic mansplain. Yeah, uh, that actually, actually. If, if you're if you're experiencing this emotion, it might yeah. not be the worst movie worst you've movie ever you've ever seen. Um, yes, unless she had just spent her last twelve dollars on oh, that ticket. Yeah, I don't see why. But that's it is hard for people to acknowledge because feelings hurt. They hurt. I yeah. mean, the, I watched that the first cut of that episode and I cried so hard and it's not like I didn't know it was going to happen. <laughs> and I was there every day we shot. I not, I wrote it and then I watched everything as we shot it. But watching it all roll out, I just cried so hard and I, I, and I actually said, ow, it hurt. But I, I allowed it to, to hurt. I have a question, which is, um, when people ask me sort of where one even begins in trying to be a writer of film or television or, or, or plays, it's like, where does one begin? And I, I always say, and I, I'm sure you get asked this constantly, which is why I'm asking you. I always say, write, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, and get to the point where you feel comfortable sharing the writing with friends and then ask them what they experience when they're reading it. And that will help you become better as a writer. And who knows where that'll go? Might go nowhere, might go somewhere. Um, what do you tell people? Uh, I usually say, uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't. Uh, I, I, yeah, of I course. think everybody is so different. The, the only practical advice I can give is to figure out specifically what kind of thing do you want to make? Not yeah. write, but make. Do you want to make... Uh, a kind of a, a an indie film, an art film? Do you want to make a big, broad comedy? Do you want to make uh, a thriller, action movie? Whatever it is, give yourself the uh, permission to write the movie you want to make as opposed to the movie you think you should be doing. This is particularly important for film students who are soaking in movies that they may admire but don't necessarily want to make themselves. Um, so once you figure out what it is you want to make, then watch your favorite examples of those movies and think about what you love and then start thinking about an idea. And whatever the idea is, make sure it is completely connected to a character and you can see, oh my God, I can. this idea will will screw up this character's life and bring them to a place. And then start outlining. I mean, this is just my advice. Some people can't. I mean, some people really just start writing. Some people do the, like John August does the the uh, so-called vomit draft where he just, just starts banging away and writes. And he's like, and it will be bad. And then I'll just revise, revise, revise. And I that doesn't work for me. I have a different, you know, my brain works differently. Everybody's does. But start by figuring out what, what do you actually want to say and do? That passion is going to be a requirement uh, to move ahead. And um, you have a far better chance of being good at it than you do trying to do stuff that you think you're supposed to do. Do you think, because you had directed things before, but you've never directed things on this scale. You directed episode right. one of Last of Us. Yeah. Did, did it give you, did it make you want to direct more stuff or go back to just writing the scripts? I loved it. I loved, loved it. it. I, I think that the thing about directing is it, in the prior, my prior experiences with directing were pretty traumatic. <laughs> um, they were done under terrible circumstances, nowhere near enough time, nowhere near enough money. Yeah. Um, collaborators that just weren't um, collaborative, uh, a, a head of a studio who was an absolute tyrant. Name names. Uh, I don't want to say his name. I'll, like, I'll give him like a pseudonym, Bob Weinstein. Let's just call him Bob Weinstein. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so Bob Weinstein um, just, you know, <laughs> treating me horribly and um, I used to complain about Bob Weinstein all the time. And then Harvey happened and I can't, I'm like, I God, I sound like an asshole. I'm like, oh, I'm complaining about a Weinstein because he was a real, he was grouchy. <laughs> like, I think other people have, other people have more serious complaints than that. But having control 
over the thing I was directing was so important because there was a trust on HBO's end. I will do this the way I think it should be. I'm working with a great cast. I'm working with a great DP. I'm working with a great team. They all support me. Yeah. I have the time I need to do the job right yeah. without you know, doing crazy long days. Then I can control the edit. And when all said and done, it was incredibly satisfying to do. And, and for the first time I felt uh, worthy. Why, why, do, why are we all obsessed with end-of-world scenarios like Last of Us? Why are we obsessed with watching these scenarios that are, for some people, too dark, but, but yeah. obviously not for 32 million people plus people? Well, I think for certain scenarios, it is just about placing a tremendous amount of pressure on characters. Um, it is a different kind of war. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a war movie where you, instead of bombs and mortars and gunfire, you're dodging zombies. But for other people, I think stories of the apocalypse and the post-apocalypse are about addressing our mortality. It is easy for us, easier for us to contemplate the mortality of humanity in general than it is to contemplate our own individual mortality, which is terrifying. But in the end, we are also fascinated by decay because we understand it is our destination. Yeah. We will we will get there and yes. we too will decay. It's it's cathartic I actually think in an unexpected way to comedy. Uh which is mm -hmm. comedy in a lot of ways we're laughing at someone on stage saying a thing that is outrageous and yet there is some truth to it that we identify and I think like when I'm watching Last of Us and I'm even watching Chernobyl, I mean, when I'm watching Chernobyl, I'm going, yeah, I could see myself being that person. I could, see, I could imagine myself being the person who doesn't speak up in a scenario. Right. And, and, and say, hey, we should acknowledge the truth that there's a major nuclear crisis on our hands that's going to affect this entire continent. And I could imagine being the character in, I mean, what's amazing is when I watch Last of Us, I joke, I joke about it, but it's like, I see myself as Joel. I see myself as Ellie. I see myself in the characters. Well, that's which is it, which is a credit, <laughs> which is a credit to you. <laughs> well, they are. So one thing that's really interesting about the video game, one of the reasons I love it and wanted to adapt it is, outside of you know, some of the difficulty sliders you can adjust in terms of combat and how it functions in the game, Joel and Ellie are just people. Yeah. They are not superheroes. They don't shoot things out of their eyeballs. Uh-huh. Um, guns have limited ammunition. Mm -hmm. There is no science fiction technology. There is no magic. It is just reality. And we were able, because we were doing it in live action, to go even further with that and say, Joel is in his 50s, he can't sprint, he can't yeah. walk around crouching for an hour the way you can in the video game. Yeah. Um, He's got Mike Birbiglia-esque energy. He has a Mike Birbiglia-esque <laughs> aerobic capacity. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's not as susceptible to pizza. Oh my gosh. I'm I mean, glad you had the conversations. These are the hard conversations. It's why we didn't go with you. Um, <laughs> but, you but, needed yeah. someone slightly better than me <laughs> right. to play me. We call it Berbiglia Plus. And well, I, but can I ask you a question? With Ellie, is it, am I wrong to say it's in the tradition of uh, Star Wars or The Matrix where she's the quote-unquote the one? Mm. I think that's not quite accurate because those stories, those messianic stories are often about the Messiah coming to understand that they're the Messiah, believing in their Messiahdom, and then achieving the miraculous. Mm -hmm. So Luke doesn't believe he's special. He's told he's special. He's told he has to become this thing. He doesn't believe, he doesn't believe. He finally believes and he does. Same right. with Neo. Ellie is uh, not that at all. I think Ellie is- The inverse, I suppose. All Ellie wants is 
to be loved. Oh. Just somebody that grew up with no parents. She had one friend that she wanted to be more than friends with. And the moment that was made possible, her friend died. She's never known what it meant to be safe in the arms of somebody you could rely on and count on. And her greatest fear that she expresses to Sam is ending up alone. Yeah, That's her greatest fear. That's all she wants. And the fact that she might be the cure for this scourge that has taken over the world, it's not anything she has to be active about. And we learn at the end, there's nothing active. In fact, it's the opposite of active. She just has to die. That's all. Yeah. She, just, she doesn't have to believe in herself and fly. <laughs> she just right. She just has to let has somebody to, pull yeah. something out of her brain and, and that will kill her. She has and then, to go under the knife and, and, yep. it, and she'll die and that's how she'll save the world. Yep. But wow. all she wants is to not be alone. And you are Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that, that has been said to me more than once by a few people. Working It Out is supported by Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. I should point out that this is an ad for Squarespace, but I love Squarespace. I was thrilled when they became an advertiser because we've used them for years. Our website for Thank God for Jokes was Squarespace. Our website for Stand Up and Vote was Squarespace. Couldn't recommend it more highly. We use it all the time. Start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint. You can sell exclusive content on your site by adding a paywall to sell memberships or courses, or sell files your customers can download like PDFs, music, or eBooks. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, head to squarespace.com slash burbigs, B-I-R-B-I-G-S, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash burbigs to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for Working It Out comes from Viore. Viore is a clothing company that draws inspiration from the coastal California lifestyle. I was thrilled that they were willing to be a sponsor because I could just talk about how soft and comfortable their clothing is all the time. I mean, I'll read the stuff they told me to say. It's uh, It inspires others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it does that. But also, my experience is it's very, very comfortable. Viore offsets 100% of their carbon footprint. And since 2019, they've also offset 100% of their plastic footprint. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off. Ooh, that's good. Your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable, versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash burbigs. That's viore.com slash burbigs. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping. What? Free shipping on any U.S. orders over 75 bucks and free returns. That's viore.com slash burbigs. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. The final thing we do in the show is we do working it out for a cause. And it's uh, any organization that you think is doing a good job, we will donate to them. We'll link to them in the show notes. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I always love bringing up uh, Be The Match. Be Um, The Match. So uh, bethematch.com is the national uh, marrow donor database. So uh, people who have serious blood disorders, often leukemia or things like this, Sometimes the only cure is a marrow transplant to replace the marrow that is creating the blood cells in their body so that they don't have the cancer cells being created, but rather healthy ones. The issue is that you can't just take marrow from one person and put it in another. The immune system will kick it out in almost all cases. But some people are matches, meaning my marrow can go into your body, into your bones and thrive. Wow. And the only way they can figure out who's who is if you register with Be The Match, with the National Donor Registry, you swab your cheek and you send it in, and now they know. And wow. it's just in there. And when somebody comes up and needs a 
uh, a donor, they swab their cheek, and then they stick it in the computer and pray to God that a name comes up. Wow. And if it's yours, you get to save someone's life. Wow. And it's the simplest thing to do, and uh, it's so important. I can't think of anything more frustrating than the knowledge that your child could be saved, Yeah. except we just don't know where to find the one person that can do it. We just yeah. don't know. That's so frustrating, upsetting. And so here's an easy way to get around that. Well, that's, uh, we will link to them in the show notes. We'll contribute to them as well. It's, uh, it's an honor to have you on, Craig. I, uh, I appreciate your friendship and wisdom. And uh, I hope we can get some viewers for your show because it just seems to be- <laughs> Floundering. Struggling to get over the hump, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And- uh, This should do I, it. I think so. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm rooting for it. And I think uh, our listeners are rooting as well. Working it out, because it's not done. Working it out, because there's no- that's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out. How about that Craig Mazin? So smart, so funny. Uh, check out The Last of Us on HBO. Also, listen to the Script Notes podcast. I always say there's hundreds of episodes. They're free. I always say people don't necessarily have to go to film school if you want to be a screenwriter. Listen to 200 episodes of Script Notes and decide whether or not you still have to go to film school. Thanks for listening. Uh, my, our producers are working it out for myself, along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia, associate producer Mabel Lewis, consulting producer Seth Barish, assistant producers Gary Simons and Lucy Jones, sound mix by Shub Sarin, supervising engineer Kate Belinsky, special thanks to Marissa Hurwitz, Josh Upfall, David Raphael, and Nina Quick, my consigliere is Mike Berkowitz, Special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music. Special thanks to J-Hope Stein, my wife, the poet. Her book, Little Astronaut, is in bookstores now. A perfect belated Mother's Day gift because you failed your mother yesterday. Is that true? I don't know. Hard to say. Also, she is. Uh, she has these great, if you love Little Astronaut, she has these signed homemade broadsides of her poems at jhopeshop.merchtable.com. They're gorgeous. Special thanks, as always, to my daughter, Una, who built the original radio fort made of pillows, where this all began. We're approaching our 100th episode. We're so excited. It is going to be a very special one. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. You can just write what your favorite episode is, and then people know where to begin in this jungle of a hundred episodes of the show. Thanks most of all to you who are listening. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. We had Craig Mazin today. Maybe you're a big fan of Last of Us and you're online at a coffee shop and you and you hear someone talking about The Last of Us so you know they know the show and there's these characters on the show and Craig calls them clickers and um, they kind of sound like this. Like you can walk up to that person and just be like, <laughs> and they'll know what you mean. See you next time, everybody.